Hello and welcome to another episode of Extra Vibes. Uh, this time we're talking about the top 10 debut albums. Of course, I'm joined by Lee Graham once again. How you doing, Ryan? Thanks for having us back, mate. <laughs> it's, uh, it's good, isn't it? It's, it's interesting. We were just talking before we kind of went on here uh, about, you know, we were looking at this list and from my perspective anyway, it was like, uh, these, even if you disregarded the fact they were debut albums, some of these albums could be considered. I mean, most of them could be considered as some of the greatest albums ever. You know, throw out the debut thing, like they're still incredibly top draw. It's crazy. It is crazy how much I think. I mean, some people would have said in other things, you know, that you know, a band has a whole career to write their first album. Um, mm. Sometimes I think that's prevalent. Sometimes I don't think it is necessarily. But arguably, there is a case for certain albums, uh, certain debut albums being the more pinnacle moment of a band's career sometimes. Yes, it's it's interesting. I mean, as you say there, it's. I think for some bands, in some cases, it can be almost like a best of mm. of the last so many years that they've been, you know, if they've been going six years prior, it's like, you know, you've got six years potentially worth of material. Um, so, yeah, that's interesting. Before we get into the top 10, do we have any honourable mentions? Because we usually do. <laughs> yeah, there are a few from my point of view, to be fair. Um, but, well, there was, there was quite a lot of honourable <laughs> <I> mentions. <Yeah. laughs> um, first one that came to mind uh, was Black Crow Shaking Moneymaker. Oh yes, of course. Uh, make it. Uh, that was an selling album that had an impact on me. Uh, they were supporting Aerosmith for the very first gig I ever went to, and that was the first time I'd seen a real shift in uh, in a band's performance in terms of everyone else was on before them. Um, and then sort of went back and then listened to the album again and sort of made that more personal collection. I haven't seen them live, so yeah, Shaky Money Maker was up there for me. Uh, mm. The only reason they didn't go up in there was because I realised when I was thinking about it that it was more the memory it evoked in terms of an album reminding me of my first gig than it was the album itself, if that makes sense. Uh, which yeah, is yeah. I've, I've tried to stick to it. It's not trying to, uh, uh, about memories or gigs, this one. So it was more about trying to go about a, a physical uh, offering of songs rather than the memories that they evoked, uh, which mm. is the only reason it didn't get figured. Uh, another one was Stone Temple Pilots Core. Um, that one just missed out on my list um, and I, I, I really struggled between not getting it in but um, it was a case of there's albums on on this list that I think as a debut albums are better and with Core although hell, I think it had a, a great impact I, I would arguably say that there are songs later in the band's career and albums later in Stone Temple Pilots' career that were equally as good I've sort of tried to keep this as a uh, a list of debuts where I think they packed the, the biggest punch. Well, that's that's fair shout. Um, my uh, honourable mentions: uh, Pearl Jam, ten. Cool. It's uh, it was different for for a brief period. It was in the top ten, but then it dropped out because of a couple of others that I can't yet reveal. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So again, that's it. They they kind of. It was interesting that that album and that time that that came in with this kind of wave of grunge bands, mm -hmm. but they kind of walked this line where it's like grunge rock still. Yeah. Um, and it's, I think they hit a perfect balance because it was just perfect for that time. Definitely. Um, and you know, they were different, you know, like you saw 
particularly when you know Nirvana were knocking about you you just had a load of bands that were kind of like Nirvana um whereas they they were doing their own thing and it was just it, it again it's even though that was their debut it's it's kind of almost taken over the rest of their career that's always the yes. one that people think of when you think of Pearl Jam um so it's kind of dominated things for them be interesting to know whether people get sick of the debut who <laughs> are in the band. <laughs> um, another one of uh, my honorable mentions is uh, Boston, self-titled album. It, it, it gets in the honorable mentions. I mean, I've I've had a look at other lists, and I've seen it keeps popping up. And I, I've listened to the album again. It, the thing is, it's not my personal taste, mm. um, but you know, it's. When you look back, it's full of cliches, yeah. but it's because that's where the cliches came from. Yeah. You know, it's it's that kind of thing. So I think that it had to get a mention because of the impact that it's just had. Um, so yeah, I'll throw that in. Uh, and my final uh, two that I'm going to kind of bunch together is uh, Wolf Mother, the self-titled album. Okay. Um, because... There was this kind of era, wasn't there, around where you had Wolf Mother, Blackstone Cherry, uh, The Answer. And the other one that is included in that is Blackstone Cherry as well, because there was this kind of resurgence around that time. Definitely. And and Wolf Mother were kind of at the top of that tree, along with Blackstone. Um, and it just kind of kicked off this kind of... a. Uh, almost like the first wave of the new wave of classic rock. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, that, that was interesting, particularly when I was a kid, like they were, they were the kind of the new bands that were my bands. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that's the same with many others, but yes, uh, we'll go straight into the number tens. What is Lee's number 10? Okay. So my number 10 actually sort of goes back to what you were saying about that first wave Mm. The, the new wave of classic rock bands and they're a band that never quite seemed to make it but having you, you know me I, I'm I'm an idiot and I will put up I'm listening to this on the way to work this morning on my Facebook um, yes. and when I put this album up before it seems to be a, a band and an album that's got quite a cult following uh, the mm. band is Silvertide and it's their show and tell album oh, I forgot they existed exactly. yeah. <laughs> people either didn't know or forgotten yeah now, completely I've, forgot about I saw them supporting Velvet Revolver on their contraband tour. Mm. And, you know, went down there and, and they absolutely hit me in the face. And I was like, I've got to have this album. And it's an album I still live, listen, listen to regularly. Um, it's an album that I, when I heard it, I, you know, it's like a live setting of a support band. You don't really know the songs too well. Mm. And uh, I wanted, knew I wanted to hear it. And so, you know, on the way, I went back through uh, via the merch thing and grabbed their, their album and their American Excess EP off the, off the guys and, you know, listened to it, soaked up. And it was an album that I was utterly convinced that these are going to be the next big thing. Having mm. seen how they do a show and hearing this album, which was produced by Kevin Shirley, of course, who's done Iron Maiden and Aerosmith. I'm oh, sorry, it was mixed by Kevin Shirley, not produced, it was mixed by him. But, you know, having mm -hmm. that involvement with someone like Kevin Shirley in the album and the songs on it, like, you know, um, uh, Blue Jeans and, you know, um, Coming Home and yeah, all sorts of stuff that's going on on that record. In fact, I knew I was going to end up forgetting the song list. Oh, I always forget song names. Here we go. 
<laughs> uh, but you know stuff like Ain't Coming Home and Devil's Daughter and So Fucking Crazy and uh, You Want It All and Foxhole Jesus Christ it was just it's just a, there's, there's 11 tracks on this record and there's not one that I ever skip you know and that came out 2005, 2006 and I was utterly convinced that this was an album that was going to set them above everyone else and I don't know why it never did they never released anything after that I know they've done a couple of sporadic shows um, but for whatever reason, it never came to any more mm. fruition than that. But that's my one and done. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, my number ten is uh, we kind of briefly touched on them in the honourable mentions. There, uh, it's the answer with Rise. Um, f- for me, this was kind of in that era, same time as uh, Silver Tide. There. Um, this particular album was, it felt like a cut above everybody. Mm. Um, like they walked the line between this kind of real classic rock style and it just, it felt modernized. It felt new. It felt fresh. Um, and it was like, I, I listened to it again recently for this. And I would say the, the opening six tracks are just oh, all no. absolutely killer. One after another. All the way through, um, like no questions asked. It's just yeah, it's like you can just keep going and going and going with it. Um, and for for me, this is this has always been as as you mentioned there. This has been an album that I will keep going back to because it's just cracking. And you know, I'm as as a side note to that, I'm very excited to see what they're going to be doing next because they're like, obviously coming back. Release new music very soon, so I'm very yeah. exactly and. They're another band that I think that because they came in so strong and with with such an awesome debut album, hmm. it's it's kind of it set the bar so high that people were expecting maybe even higher than that. Yeah, um, and you know maybe they found a bit of difficulty with trying to match that. Um, but you know it'd be interesting to see where they go next. But for me, this this one had to be in there. Um, and uh, it's, it's one of the kind of newer ones in, in this list for me. Uh, yeah, so moving on, what is uh, Lee's number nine? Uh, so my number nine is, uh, I think we're both sort of starting with the, the newer side of things. Um, <laughs> to be honest, in that same thing, but it's what's had an impact. But my, uh, my number nine is Temperance Movement and Self-Titled. Oh. Their self-titled debut. Um, I remember this one coming out. Uh, I think unlike Silver Tide, I don't think it did get the tension it deserved. Um, I think there was a lot of uh, making a massive impact on it. I mean, I remember buying the album and then realizing that they were, I bought the album and then I realized that two days after I bought the album, they were playing Norwich, which is only a sort of up the road from me. No one knowing who they were. <laughs> so, yeah, mates, and I was like, I need to go. So I called a mate of mine and I was like, you know, cause I used to give him lift to work. It's like, you know that album I had on the car yesterday? He's like, yeah. I'm like, they're playing Norwich tomorrow. You liked it, so you're coming. Like, I will buy you a ticket. <laughs> you're obligated. You're obligated now. If you don't want to li- lift to work for the rest of the week, then that's fine. <laughs> um, but that album just had such a big impact. And I thought all the way through from, you know, um, Ain't No Telling and Only Friend uh, to Midnight Black, I thought the production on it was really good. I thought it captured their energy on the album. I think it delivered all the promise that they, those guys had. Sadly, Temperance Movement are no more. Um, all right at the moment. 
I love I'd love to think that they were coming back together. Um I think Phil's got one of the finest voices going. I think he's got a great rock voice. I think he's um as a front man, I know some people have referred to him as a bit of a, a rock and roll Jamiroquai with his stage performances, <laughs> but, uh, but I absolutely love him. I saw so thing is I, I love Jamiroquai, right? So when someone put that in a in a review, I didn't take that as an insult. I thought, oh, that's cool. And you know, I I've seen them live, I think they're great. Um but yeah, and going through all the way through. And um, for me, people I often talk about, you know, the magic third album that a band's got a couple of albums to find their feet and then you get the magic third. It's like, you know, Bon Jovi's Slippery When Wet or Aerosmith's Toys in the Attic or wherever it might be. But for me, I think it had all the stature of that magic third record when they came mm. in out the gate, so to speak. But yeah, that's my, my number nine. Yes, the rock version of Jamiroquai. <laughs> put it on post some... Yeah, I was going to say, people need to put that on posters, T-shirts, <laughs> everywhere. I'd take it. Exactly. <laughs> I'd buy it. <laughs> um, my number nine. Uh, we're going heavily into the classics immediately. Uh, uh, it's Led Zeppelin 1, the very first. Uh for for me, this I mean, this this is an example. I mean, everybody knows that I like my Led Zeppelin. Every, like this this shows how strong the rest of the list is. <laughs> the fact that this is number nine, um, very much like you said there. With, with you know, bands usually they'll have the second album or the third album where it's like they really kind of nail who they are and the that's iconic sound that they've got uh, with with the uh the first Led zeppelin album it's you know there's definitely that in there but i think that everything else they did afterwards just kicks it up another gear like led zepp 2 is kind of where they really come into their own i think um but that that album when it came out, I mean, it came out in let me just have a look, nineteen sixty eight, um, and you know it, it kind of changed the game again. It's it's an it's an album game changer, I think. You know when you hear that, and then you you look at the you know through the history, and you see these other albums and other bands that came along after Led Zeppelin. There were some that are very similar, <laughs> just a year or two years after. Um, so for me, it's that impact. So it has to be in the top 10, I think. Ooh. Yes. Um, moving on, your, your number eight. Uh, and, uh, my number eight, I would argue, not completely different to Zeppelin, but uh, I would say another game changer um, in terms of music, uh, and that is Rage Against the Machine, self-titled. Oh, yeah. Um, I was fortunate enough, like, you know, we spoke about, you know, both our dads being into music and stuff before. And although my dad loved Aerosmith and Zeppelin and Sabbath and Priest, he also, you know, we, you know, when grunge was coming around, I was listening to it straight out the gate. Um, as I was a Rage Against the Machine when that came out, and my dad was a big Rage Against the Machine fan. So I, I was fortunate enough to catch it very early on. And because I guess stylistically, I'd never heard anything like Rage. You know, I was seven, eight years old and I was listening to stuff didn't sound like guitar bass and drums this yeah. sounded otherworldly you know and i think it's fair to say that they changed the musical landscape forever with this record um you know you've had bands since you obviously had the new metal uh, genre that sort of came out which arguably took massive influences from bands like rage um but i don't think no one has ever played that style of music with the same panache and same 
attitude about it. Obviously, there's, there's all the political side of rage as well. Mm. Um, I mean, the debut, I think I'm right in saying this, is 30 years old in November. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And, you know, you've got all the, the, the songs that were on that first record, you know, uh, with like Bomb Track and Take the Power Back and Know Your Enemy, of course, uh, Killing in the Name of, um, Bullying It in the Head. And all those songs, when you listen back to the album, I, I listened to it again recently um, mm. uh, while I was going through debut albums, and it still hits you with that same ferocity, that same fear, that same passion, that same aggression. And because of everything that was going on in the world then, 30 years ago, um, and that everything that's going on in the world now, it still sounds really current. It still sounds, sadly, like no progress has been made in the last 30 years. Yes. <laughs> um, which you like to think, you know, you'd like to think you'd like, you know, you think now listening back to 30 years ago to Rage was like when we were kids listening to Bobby Crew and mm. how much the world had changed in that. And you, you wouldn't put on, you know, um, Theatre of Pain or something and think, oh, well, this sounds like it could have been made today. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to have been yesterday. <laughs> but, but with Rage, I, I get that, you get that feeling that it does. And uh, yeah, so for those reasons, it's it's my number eight. Mm. That's a strong choice. It's, it's very much, as, as I was saying there with Led Zeppelin, it's, you know, when you bring out an album and then a year, two years later, you're seeing a lot of other bands that are having a similar style. You know that, you know, it's it's made a real kind of uh, wave in, in the in the music industry and not, not just in your little bubble at that point. It's, exactly. Um, I think the ultimate compliment is when other musicians clearly recognise that there's something to it. I did a really cool uh, interview once with... Um, uh, Tim Comfort, the bass player from Rage, mm. and it was he was the guy was trying to say of the influence that Rage had, had and he said, uh, "What would you, what, you know, what do you say about having all the influences on bands like Corn and Limp Bizkit?" And Tim Comfort turned around and said, "If we are in any way responsible for Limp Bizkit, then I wholly apologise." <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Well, I I don't accept your apology. <laughs> 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 um, moving on to my number eight <laughs> um, we're going to go for another classic uh, it's The Doors self-titled uh, this came out in uh, very early uh, 1967 um, and uh, yeah exactly and it, I mean if you look at that kind of era and the music that was coming around in that kind of uh, time this sounds completely different you know, it's it, like uh, lyrically, it's. I mean, it, it, it's just out there, isn't it? Like, if you hear stuff from that era, it's just so bizarre <laughs> compared to everything else that's going on at that time. Um, I think it's a brave album to release at that period. Um, and again, it's another one where afterwards you're seeing a lot of similar kind of things and people are starting to think more outside of the box. So they're, they're, they're kind of, I mean, I, it wouldn't surprise me at all that, you know, they're responsible for a lot of stuff, particularly Jim Morrison. I mean, how many times have you heard singers say Jim Morrison inspires me, you know, numerous times, um, you know, lots of iconic tracks net tracks now that are just uh, to to some younger people. You know, maybe they haven't even heard the full album; they'd still know songs off it. 
Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, you yeah. know anyone would know, you know, break on through to the other side. Or, exactly. You know, you know, like this is the end. It's, yeah. it, you know, it's, it, you, you just, it's integrated into pop culture at this point. Um, it's everywhere. Like, yeah, I, I vaguely remember hearing uh, the end in the Simpsons episode. Yeah. It's like like when it's bleeding through in into that. I mean that that was released in what the nineties, so that was years after that came out, and it's still White world and everything. Yeah, you know, it, it, there's just so much in there, and um, you know, even even if you look at them as a band, you know, the way that Jim Morrison was performing, you know, and what he was doing, it was so different to everything else that came before. Um, so for that reason, it has to be in there so that's my number eight that's a good choice man like I wouldn't it's an album that passed me by until relatively later on and mm. you know you think all the albums are going to have an impact on you other ones you listen to your teenagers and a lot of mine are um, but yeah that is a it's a great record The Doors album I mean I didn't start listening to The Doors till I was like in my 20s mm. they were a band that would fly around my dad like them and stuff but they were never yeah. a band that really grabbed me and then- I think, yeah, I think that what's happening now is because it was just done in such a different era. Mm. Um, I, when I was a teenager, I didn't really understand it. I thought this is a bit odd. It's a bit <laughs> weird, <laughs> you know, cause you're that kind of disconnected from it. You know, you're in a completely different era. Um, when you've got, you know, very contemporary music, this kind of seems a bit, I don't know. Maybe maybe you could use the word dated in to a degree, um, but when you, I think, I mean, I've seen it a lot with a lot of artists and, and other people that I know. When you go into your twenties, now that seems to be the kind of era now where people start to like the doors and start to kind of understand it a bit more, perhaps. I think so. I think yes. So uh, moving on to number seven. Uh, yeah, my number seven. Uh, again, I, I think we're going back and forth with uh, doing something completely different from one each other, uh, which is what this is all about, mate. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but my number seven, is, again, is is similar themes, though. I would argue is a band that, again, changed music. And I would argue that, you know, bands thereafter them definitely changed their sound or, or adopted sounds. Um, you had bands like Cure and Gary Newman, Depeche Mode doing it previously. But um, my album of choice is Nine Inch Nails or Pre-Hate Machine. Mm. Um, I think when they came out, that was tracks like Head Like a Hole and Sin. Um, their use of not only of the way they were writing songs, but their use of synthesizers, the, the, the way I know they were used previously, you know, you can take that all the way back to, you know, bands like Kraftwerk and stuff like that. But the way in which Trent used them in Nine Inch Nails um, and, and trip hop loops and drum machines and bring it all in just showed it seemed to expand everyone's mind into the possibilities of these various areas and arguably their set to this day still draws on heavily from that early period of Nine Inch Nails and I feel that Pretty Hate Machine had a real big impact it wasn't necessarily their favourite album of theirs for me but mm. I feel that as a debut it showed all the promise that they led to go on for the rest of their career a bit like you were saying there of course with like Led Zeppelin yeah album one and then obviously all the way through where they found themselves I think on like Down the Spiral they they really found themselves um, but yeah that's my number seven for, for Nine Inch Nails mm, solid choice uh, my number seven 
another one that I would consider an absolute classic. Uh, it's Jeff Buckley with Grace. Oh, nice. Um, you know, this came out in uh, 1994. I was one, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but if you, again, if you listen to, to the music around that time, Jeff Buckley was something completely different. Um, and he, he interestingly walked this line. Um, I recently watched, uh, when he went on, uh, it was like BBC. It was like late night or something with uh, somebody. Um, and, the, the presenter before that was saying that uh, he's managed to capture both that young and old audience. Mm. Like you had kids that were like loving him and you had people that, you know, before that would listen to like Led Zeppelin and stuff, you know. Um, and it, for me, that, that vocal ability, particularly on Grace, um, is just is second to none. I mean, I, I, would, I would put him up there with vo like some of the best vocalists I've ever heard, you know, yeah, he's, he's, his vocal range was insane. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. And um, like there was a Lulluck Wine that cover he did. It's it's ridiculous. Um, you know, Hallelujah again. It's another cover, but it's like he does it in such a way that he, he's made it his own. They even let him Cohen said that was like the best version of Hallelujah. It was just I was I was going to say there. It's like he's kind of overshadowed mm. the the original, um, and you know stuff like Grace and uh, uh, Last Goodbye. It's like you know you can keep going so real, which is kind of a bit of an odder uh, song. You know, it's um, it's a bit more out there, but it's. The, there's just so much, you know, his guitar ability as well. You know, is again, it's second to none. Um, but yes, he's he's an artist that's you know he's a one and done. Yeah, um, of course. Yeah, um, obviously things were curtailed after that. Um, so it's interesting though with 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 Jeff because that album has just stuck. Like, oh, the massive impact that's had, like you say, yeah. from 94, so you're talking 28 years ago now. Yeah. All the way through. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. It, this is it. You know, I mean, I have I saw, ooh, about a month ago, I was in a vinyl shop and I saw a kid that was about 18 years old who was seemingly excited to see that he, that Jeff Buckley was in. <laughs> you know and that's how many years ago you know what i mean like there is still this kind of well i have to buy this record yeah you know i think he was just starting his vinyl collection and it's like that was one of his go-tos um i think it's it's that go-to for a lot of people when lockdown mm. kicked in and i got my vinyl player it was one the first ones i had to get was was grace yeah it's just no. such an impact on an album yeah yeah uh, yeah, for me, that's kind of one of the ones that, that really stick. Uh, moving on, uh, what's your next uh, choice? Uh, so my number six is one that you mentioned in your honourable mentions, and that is uh, Wolfjaw, uh, Wolfjaw, Wolfmother's self-titled. Yeah, that's quite high up. I'm surprised. Yeah. Um, it was an album that, like you say, it came around along that era where mm. The Answer and Blackstone Cherry Um and whereas The Answer and Blackstone Cherry continued their career, um, 
I know Wolf Mother have gone off and on and Andrew Stocksdale has gone and done solo albums. Um, I, for me personally, and I can only speak for myself, I don't think they ever reached the height yeah. of their debut again. And I can only talk for myself. There's other people who love the latter day, uh, the sort of second turn and so forth. Mm. Albums I've done and I've had people saying to me that, you know, certain albums they prefer and it's just all opinion. But for me, they, ne- they never got as far as the debut album. Um, when, you know, the first time I heard uh, Joker and Thief, I think it was the first track I heard off of it. Um, and, you know, like you say, it's in that period where it, all these sort of first of new wave of classic rock bands are coming through. And I was like, Matt, this, you know, this is a band for me, this, and liking this. And then I went and bought the album, absolutely fell in love with it. Um, and then after, you know, probably about six, seven months after I got the album, they played Download Festival on the Friday. And mm. seeing the reaction they got live to those songs as well, it was like seeing that and going, wow, okay, well, this is this this album is just not impacted me. This has impacted, you know, yeah. a good few thousand people here who've turned up to watch their set at sort of, you know, four or five o'clock in the afternoon or whenever they were on. And I just thought that album showed so much premise um, that I don't feel was followed up on, but it doesn't take away from the impact that the album itself had. Um, you know, when you like, so you've got tracks like Joker and Thief, uh, Woman, Where Eagles Have Been, it's just wall to bangers, mate. The, 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 I just feel like it's one of the most solid debuts. No, I, I, yeah, I have to agree. Um, the, the first one I heard, I think, was Dimension. Okay. Um, and it's just it walks that line because it's 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 retroy, but it feels modern mm. at that time. Um, and it's it's interesting because it was. I think uh, I remember seeing an article. Uh, it was in Classic Rock when it had just come out. They they, they were saying it was like uh, you know if, if Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin had a child. Yeah, I remember saying like that. That was kind of like the outcome. Um, and it it does feel kind of like that, but there's there's some other stuff in there as well, and it's um, you know it's uh, I I would say of the you know the these kind of modern ones, you know there's that there's them and the answer as, as I mentioned there. I think those two albums in particular were uh, a cut above. Um, I do remember Wolfmother were everywhere when this album. Well, uh, really were everywhere at one point. Yeah, they? like they they look like the band that would be. Yeah, the ones to sort of take it over to the sort of mainstream almost. Yeah, they looked like they were bleeding over because I remember they were in like Guitar Hero. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously that was a game for the younger people that was very big at the time. <laughs> 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 um, but, uh, you know, it was just, it was kind of bleeding in and, uh, you know, you were seeing them kind of more and more in mainstream uh, things. Yeah. Um, which I think, you know, for that to carry th- over, like they were the only one really that kind of carried over, I think. Yeah, I think they did. I mean, even on like small level, at the time that album came out, I was in my first year at uni. Mm. Um, and I used to DJ a lot of the rock clubs and stuff. And some of the nights I used to do was more more general rock nights. And then I used to do, uh, there was a rock night that was called uh, Rockers, which tended to be like the indie side of things, but not necessarily my cup of tea, but it was yeah. 50 quid in my back pocket while I was at uni. So. <laughs> um, and, but it, t- it tended to be, you know, that wave of things like the Kooks and Franz Ferdinand and, and Killers and all that side of things. And I was DJing there one night and I had a guy come up to me and say, can you play woman? Ah, interesting. Uh, 
I was like, okay, mm-hmm. so it's sort of filtering across to this side of things. You know, it was a, one of the few tracks I could I could play it in in Raucous, which is this indie sort of night, and then I could go upstairs where the sort of smaller room was, and we used to have our, our rock night in there and then play in there. Mm. It was crazy. There wasn't many tracks you could cross over on that, but that was one where I remember used to get requests for a lot. Yes, I think the one that you can say would be a clear crossover is Apple Tree. Yeah, I felt like that was kind of uh, maybe their bridge. Mm. Like, like they they were thinking, oh, you know, maybe maybe try and go down that uh, for one track anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, it's a very solid choice. Um, my uh my number six is uh one that i i kind of i've always heard of him but i never really dived into him until a few months back um it was it was during a conversation with um you know tj from the georgia thunderbolts oh yeah right well he he was absolutely banging the gong for bob seeger yeah absolutely banging it and uh, um, he was like his early work is like top top draw you know for me initially I always thought oh Bob Seger I was thinking you know this is uh, the guy you know towards the latter end of the 80s who was wearing like bizarre classic 80s stuff and it sounded a bit more commercial Um, but I went and heard uh, Rambling Gambling Man and I was like this is ridiculously cool and nobody talks about it. Like so nobody got a says anything. I've delved into too much. I think I'm going to have to do that. Honestly, it's like nobody talks about this album anymore. Um, and it's 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 so cool. It's a joke. It's like there's it's heavy uh, for that era. Like, this came out in 1969, um, and it is there's so much like there's raw vocal ability. It's very raw. It's very heavy for that time. It's you know, there are certain songs where it kind of it verges on early kind of hard rock at the time. It's like, and this is Bob Seger. It's like, <laughs> you know, like, like it's like the, there was a clear transition at some point uh, from this kind of uh, real like like rocky uh, material to a more commercialized. Avenue in the latter half of the eighties, but his early work. I mean, I have to agree with TJ. His early work is outstanding, and I, you know, I listened to this. And there's a there's a couple of tracks where it's like it's a bit out there for that time. Like there's stuff like White Wall and uh, Black Eyed Girl, which is, I mean, the bass on that. I mean, you're you're a bass guy. The bass on that song is is ridiculous. Whoever played that, I can't remember his name, but. Um, Honestly, it's it's an album that for for people that go, oh Bob Seger, he's a bit, you know, he's kind of that that guy. Um, I retain that it's the best thing he ever did. I think it's better than Night Moves. I think it's better than all of the the rest of the stuff he did. Um, But nobody always mentions it. Like everybody forgets. Um, I'm gonna have to take that out or give that a proper spin, mate. Because I'll be honest, honestly, uh, yeah. TJ was mentioned Bob Seger to me when when I interviewed TJ. Yes, <laughs> uh, I think he's on a he's on a mission. Yeah, <laughs> um, and I'll be honest, it was that thing where it's like I've I've just come to the opinion that Bob Seger isn't for me. Yeah, which is for, you know you're gonna have artists like that. No, it's exactly what I thought. I thought, oh, he's not my cup of tea. Yeah, and honestly, if you hear that original album, it will change your opinion. Um, there, there is a it, there's a different style definitely yeah um, 
and it's it's certainly more towards this kind of classic classic rock hard rock kind of avenue um which caught me by surprise and it's i think it's a shame that you don't hear people talk about this album in particular because um yeah for me it's his best work yeah. um you feel almost got a lot. mile Hmm? You feel like it's almost got lost being from Yeah, it's it's kind of got buried in time. Um you know, no nobody I, I haven't heard anybody talk about it apart from TJ. <laughs> Maybe that's why he's banging this gong for it, because you know, it's it has. It's been it seems to have been forgotten. And you know, that that's why I, I, over this last half a year it's become one of my go to albums that I'll listen to. Oh, all right. Okay. Yeah, it's you know, it's right up there. So it's like it has to be in this top 10 you know when it's a debut i mean for me this is ridiculous it's a debut album it's that level yeah. it, it feels like i mean i imagine that he'd been knocking about for a few years at this point like it feels like an almost like a best of as we spoke about there where it's like each track has just got so much to it every time it's like banger after banger um and uh, uh the the title track there rambling gambling man did uh briefly bleed back into popular culture again because um quentin tarantino used it in uh, once upon a time in hollywood oh okay so it's kind of it's slightly crept back into uh into existence again but um yes for anybody that, that's like oh i don't know about bob seger go and check that album out because it'll probably change your opinion i think i'm gonna have to do that myself mate to be honest because <laughs> he's, he's someone I, I assumed that just wasn't for me but yeah i was the same opinion completely Honestly, <laughs> I was over. It's a joke. <laughs> uh, what's moving into our top five now? Top five. Starting to get quite serious. Uh, what is uh, your number five? Yeah, so yeah, I say top five now, mate. And a bit like when we did our albums uh, of 2021 um, oh. before, there's very minimal margin between this and the top yeah. one. But I will say this is a top one's the only one that's never changed. I was saying to you off uh, there's others when I was writing notes and re-listening to stuff, I was like, oh, okay. Um, mm. Maybe I prefer this album over that, which I didn't realise I did until I started thinking about it. But uh, this album is is not only one of my favourite debuts, it's one of my favourite albums of all time. Um, and there was no way that this, this wasn't going to make my list. And it's the Wild Hearts with Earth's Earth versus the Wild Hearts. Um, for me, the ferocity of this album, the songwriting is insane. Um, the production is really great. I think the guys produced it themselves, so it's still got that raw quality. But with the side of things that the Wild Hearts do, that's all raw punk and roll uh, that they do. It captures their energy live. Um, some would argue it's best album. For me, it's definitely up there. I think mm -hmm. uh, when they came back, Renaissance Men and 21st Century Love Songs, I think that those two albums stand up against it. Um, but you can't argue with the songwriting on it. I mean, I've always said I think Ginger's one of the finest songwriters uh, going ever. He doesn't seem to be able to write a bad song. And like, <laughs> he does, I love what I love about Ginger is he'll go and do, right, I'm going to go do a pop record. And he forms Hey Hello and does one of the best pop albums I've ever heard in ages. And then he'll go and do whatever he wants to do. Um, sadly, no, Wild Hearts have gone on hiatus for a little bit by the looks of things. Um, but Earth Versus is just insane. You've got tracks on it like, you know, <laughs> caffeine bomb tv tan uh, baby's head fuck news of the world uh you know it's it's certainly almost like we you were saying there about uh obviously it's certainly acting like a great hits yeah. um 
And I think arguably a lot of those songs that were just mentioned were still staples and still be those sort of highlights when you go see them live. There's still the songs, you know, people want to hear Catherine Bond and TB Tan and Baby's Head Fuck and stuff. But for me, I think it gets overlooked quite a lot of just mm. how much of a of an impact it had. I mean, the album came out in 92, 93. And then, you know, you have bands like Three Colours Red and everything that came after that sort of Brit rap therapy, I would argue, was influenced by it on that sort yeah. of mad stuff. Um, you know, that kind of Brit rock, kind of dark, grungy punk that came, came alongside the sort of American grunge scene. You had sort of Brit rock um, mm. of that era. And I would argue that a lot of those bands were heavily influenced by this record subconsciously or subconsciously and uh, uh yeah for me it's one of the best albums going so it had to be in there mm. no it's um it's a good shout i like the difference that we have in these yeah. uh, styles i think between us we have a hell of a list <laughs> you know uh my number five uh this is an album that i remember as even a tiny kid, my dad used to just love and he'd play. And I I looked at this particular guitarist and I thought, how on earth could I ever get to this standard? <laughs> like it was a joke. <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, so it's Van Halen, the self-titled oh, album. Um, you know, you hear Eruption and you think, well, this has just changed the face of music. Yeah. <laughs> you know, nothing's going to be the same now. Um, and, I mean, this came out in uh, 1978. 78. Okay. Yeah, 78. I mean, you weren't far off there. Um, and it's you can tell that after that, it pretty much influenced most of the 80s. Um but, you know, particularly with guitarists, um, it's it, it's just classics, isn't it? You know, even the covers they do, you know, like you really got me. It's that's true. Uh, it, it, you know, the way in which they do things, it, it was again, it was very different um, to what I'd come previously. Um, and I think Eddie Van Halen in particular is is. Uh, possibly one of the greatest i mean some would argue the greatest uh, guitarist of all time um but that that style on that album it just changed everything and um yeah that that's an album i always look at as kind of a benchmark it's a hell of a benchmark it is. you know i mean to, to, to think that that's their debut release crazy when it when they came out of the gate like they did and you you were saying there about eruption and i remember uh, when we were when I was in middle school, so I was like like eleven or twelve. I was kind of the only kid in the school who liked rock music. Everyone else was listening to yeah. Backstreet Boys or whatever, NSYNC or whatever they were listening to. And I wasn't sort of aware I was listening to anything different until um, I went to see Aerosmith at the age of eleven, and everyone in the school went "Who?" and I'm like. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but uh, in year seven, uh, a mate of mine who's still one of my best mates to say, Max joined the school, and he was the other geeky weird kid who liked rock music and he also i was the first person i knew who played guitar properly not just mm. like strumming it in school assembly this guy would been playing for some time and i remember going around his house and we were like you know just starting to hang out and stuff about 12 years old and he picked up he's, he's still an insanely good guitarist but he played eruption with the double tap and it was the first yeah. person i ever saw do that and i remember just watching and you that was probably you know the 1978 so we're talking 
20 odd years after the event so to speak exactly. and you've got you know him going oh i'm going to show off in front of my new friend because i can do this and I, how many millions of kids have probably gone and done that you know what i mean yeah. and then you've got people like you know Dimebag, obviously pantera was a massive you know, you've only got to look at all the people that came out of the woodwork when you know uh, eddie van halen sadly passed away and on all the influence mm. that on people over the years i mean for me me and my mates were talking about this round about the time that he passed away of like influential guitarists and we were saying it would be like hendrix you had hendrix then you had eddie van halen yeah. and then you had like dimebag and we can't think of anyone after dimebag yet that's had that sort of cultural impact mm. on um you know how everyone wants to play guitar you know yeah. start off with you know hendrix everyone wanted to play behind the head and and, and play a fender then you had eddie come out of the back and suddenly like you say everyone of the days was doing double taps and shredding and, mm. and then he went oh i'm gonna go play synth now and i'm not bothered by my guitar <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes um, the, the, there is a video somewhere on vhs buried away somewhere of uh me as a baby dancing around to jump <laughs> so it is ingrained in my uh DNA, mate. kind of psyche at this point um it's just always been there. It's an album that has just been constantly there. Um, and it, for good reason, I would say. Um, it, yeah, it's an iconic album, I think. Uh, even just looking at the cover, you just, it's just there, isn't it? Yeah. You know? Um, so, yes, that, that's my number five. Moving into the top four. Cool. Um, so, my top four. Um, is an album I feel a lot of people will be on this, especially of my era, because it's certainly made a huge impact. And it's The Darkness with Permission to Land. Wow. Um, I, I was wondering whether this would bleed into your list. Yeah. I mean, I remember that when it came out, I mean, I first heard, um, I actually first saw The Darkness supporting my dad's friend's band in a pub. It was really- Wow, that's really early then. Yeah, because um, obviously they're from around this way. Mm. my dad's friends band was playing a pub somewhere and i went along with my dad i was probably sort of 13 or whatever and there was the the landlady's nephew's band supporting them it turned out that that was the darkness um so they came on and obviously it was a lot rawer and everything and they were quite early on in their career but i remember like really enjoying them like these guys you know are great and then mm. about 18 months two years later something like that the video for growing on me was on like kerrang tv basically and i was sort of watching kerrang tv and i'm like dad i recognize this <laughs> yeah hello with my dad into the living room you know and i'm he's like what and i'm like aren't they the band that were supporting leroy's band and he went yeah you know and then it was sort of like right okay and i went and bought uh, permission to land when that came out and saw the album ultimately explode mm. um I mean, the headline Reading Festival, just on the back of the, that one, on, on back of permission yeah, to One that. album. Yeah. One album, you know, they went from, um, I mean, it's undoubtedly, I mean, I've, particularly since they've got uh, Rufus Taylor on drums, I think that the last few albums they've done have been absolutely brilliant. I really do. Um, you know, there was a period where it went a bit, not uh, quite up to what I would expect from the darkness, um, but they had, you know hotcakes they came back with and it was a solid album but i don't think it was them at their peak um yeah. but then again they had you know upsetting the band with their graham leaving and them still not really having a secure drummer and stuff but um without doubt permission to land you've got to, you've got to give it to it is probably their most popular release without doubt um, yeah i mean this is the one that 
they they were an interesting band at this time um is to to a further extent than what, what we were talking about with wolf mother they were firmly ingrained in mm. mainstream culture oh god yeah um i remember seeing them come on like jonathan ross you know that's the uk show for those who are abroad um and it, you know like particularly in in that time what rock band do you see go on jonathan you know ross you know it's like this is a mainstream saturday night tv show i mean you know the point where like they started off like you know they came and when the permission came out 2003 2004? yeah two, two or three i think yeah so they came out in the sea of the new metal era mm. There you have bands like Corn and Papa Roach and Linkin Park and then Biscuit, and all all of which I loved at that time. But the darkness, and I've always maintained this, that album was like my gateway back to what I truly loved, you know. And what I truly loved yeah. was blues, hard rock, you know. Mm. Um, they, you know, I, like a lot of teenagers do, you go off and try and find your own thing, and you know the new metal thing came along, and I loved a lot of it, and I still do. But mm. when the darkness came back, it was like, okay, so what I really want is what I've always really won. I want loud drums. I want massive sing-along choruses. I want big guitarists. And, you know, the answer confirmed that when they came along with Rise. Rise is a fantastic yeah. record, and that cemented it. But the darkness are definitely my gateway back to that, permission to that, definitely. Now, people always go on about, you know, I believe in a thing called love and stuff like that. But you listened a little deeper on that album. You've got, like, Get Your Hands Off My Woman. You've got Black mm-hmm. Shark. You've got Love on the Rocks with No Ice. Um, and Night in the Ruts. Um it's just a fantastic record and i would still argue i mean the last time i saw darkness was when they headlined um rambling man Fet on the friday so that would have been 29 yeah 2019 that would have been because it was when thinking and you know justin hawking stroke you said you know this one's off our first album we've done others since but none of you wankers have bought any of those <laughs> you know <laughs> it's yeah i think they know it's the yeah most of that album is the you know it's got songs that they're the ones that people want to hear, aren't they? The, the, the opening six tracks, I would say, are all hits. Yeah, and I don't know that you've n- no band has seen that kind of explosion since then. Not to that level. Yeah. I don't think, I mean, and the music chain, the industry is in, in the space of 18 months to go from supporting <laughs> uh, your your uh, Does Friends band to, to headlining Reading. Headlining Reading. I mean, that is a hell of an uh, ascension. I mean, yeah, it, it shows that um, it, it, I felt like they were a band that came along at the right time. Mm, I think there, so. there was some, there was something somewhere, um, you know, somebody must have spotted them and thought, this is the thing that we want now. To, to show yeah. everything that's going to come along to change the scene or change a pattern has got to be, you know, the opposite of what's just happened you know yeah. you had 80s with all the glam rock and, and the big pomp and all the sort of makeup and the image that came away came along with it what comes along the next after it grunge they're out completely and yeah. um so equally i think when you had you know new metal and seen heavily at the time where you know the, the market is saturated with you know bands who were just wearing jeans and t-shirts and hoodies um you've got turntablists you've got people rapping you've got no one singing and there's no guitar solos Mm. and then you get I'm not slagging off any band of that era it was a massive part of my teenage years and I loved it you know Um, but then you got the darkness that come along in the midst of that you got Justin Hawkins wearing a sparkly cat suit 
It's a ballsy move, particularly in that time. Yeah. You know. <laughs> guitar side is he came on to stage at Reading or one show I've seen, I can't remember if it was Reading or elsewhere, riding a, a glittery tiger from the back of the <laughs> on There was the there's a there's an amazing story it reminded me of a uh I think Justin was talking about um the, when they were doing the stadium tours mm. at some point he'd he'd got a, a thing where he was riding a massive pair of breasts that, that were over the <laughs> stadium and it's like, in the in that era where people were just having you know jeans and a t-shirt and yeah. not playing solos you know it's it, it's you know, it may, maybe that's what it needed Maybe you know. I think it's what it did because it definitely mm. shakes up, and then it, like I say, it busted that door open for bands who were doing that blues rock side things. And then you know, a couple of years later, you're getting bands like The Answer and Blackstone Cherry mm. and Airborne and Wolfmother and bands like that coming through the ranks and mm. and playing more straight up rock again where they weren't before. You know, you know, it's the classic thing on um, Metallica's some kind of monster documentary where Kirk's like well, they're arguing, well, we, well, we can't do a guitar solo now because that's yeah. not what's going on. I mean, arguably, I think if you don't do a guitar solo and it's sort of like I'm with Kirk on that one I think it cemented it to that period rather than freeing it from it but that's that's mm. a, another another time for another beer sort of thing but, <laughs> you know you have bands even of Metallica's level who were like oh well we can't do a guitar solo because this is what's happening now yeah for a band to come out of the, back, out of the ranks unknown at the time just going we're going to have guitar solos on every song on the album we're all going to be you know 70s pomp and and have some fun with it and bring bring fun and back to it and not be so serious and just have a good time i think it was what what was needed in the rock industry at that time mm, no I, I i agree uh my number four kind of a similar thing with the in terms of the game changer uh it's guns and roses with appetite for destruction well, um you know, they, they came along, in, uh, well, they released this in 1987. So this was at a time where, you know, you were getting bands like Poison and, um, you know, like uh, Motley Crue and all of these kind of hair metal type bands. And Guns N' Roses, they, they just bring it back to that kind of classic rock uh, at its finest. And... Um, this this is widely considered one of the best debut albums ever by a lot of people. Mm. Um, they, it's it's again, it's the mainstream thing now, isn't it? It's ingrained in in culture. You know, Welcome to the Jungle. I mean, that's your opening track on a debut album. It's an absolute joke. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just uh, you know, you, you've got like Paradise City, obviously, and you know, like you're seeing now, there are pub bands that are playing these songs. You know, that that trickle down. Yeah, everybody wants to play these songs. Everybody wants to hear these songs still today. Um, and obviously, you know, you've got Slash there that's now become, you know, the, well, he instantly became this guitar hero. Um, and it, 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 again, it, I think that they turned up at a time when it was really needed, mm. you know, when rock was almost this kind of glam rock, it was almost bleeding towards pop. Like you had Poison with like very kind of, if you look at the, structure of their songs like talk dirty to me and stuff like that it, it had similar kind of rhythms to what pop music would be it had the big choruses and things like that and i think that guns and roses they they just brought it back to where i think 
rock should be, but modernized it for that period of time. Um, and that, I think they made things cool again. They brought it back to that guttural kind of street level, didn't they? Like you say, yeah. yeah where we were talking about there with the grunge thing before grunge came back. Um, where it was, you know, it was all about your image and it was, you know, big, yeah. big costume, big, you know, big hair, big makeup, big everything. And then you had, you know, Guns and Roses who were walking around with like, you know, slash with no shirt on and a pair of like, trousers <laughs> and a hat. And, you know, Axl Rose running around in a pair of cycling shorts and, you know, I remember I've, I've read, I don't know if you've read it, but it's a great read if you haven't, that's Stephen Adler's um, autobiography, um, mm. My Appetite for Destruction. And he's saying on one of the shows when they were still doing, when Guns N' Roses were still doing the makeup and everything. Um, and Poison went on first and they came on with all their glam hair and all makeup and all that. And Stephen Adler said, he went and looked at them and went, we're nothing like them. Why are we dressed like them? And they literally said, he literally just got like a towel in the make in the sort of dressing room with a big stash and just rubbed yeah. his makeup off his face. And the rest of the guys did the same. We're like, well, we're just going to go be us because we're nothing like that. Um, and, you know, arguably, I would say it was indisputable that they, they became the bigger band, you know. Mm. Um, you know, the irony being that Slash went and tried out for Poison. Um, that is weird. Yeah. I was reading that slash biography and he, he said he walked out and, you know, they were like saying, so, you know, what are you going to wear on stage? Cause it's slash, but he turns up on like jeans and Converse and a t-shirt and he's like, uh, this yes. Yeah. And they're like, Oh no, no, we need this. And we know, Oh, we can do this. We can have the makeup on you and slash said, he, you know, he walked out and as he walked out, um, Cece was walking in for his audition. He said, as, as soon as he looked at Cece, he was like, I'm not getting this job. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, but you can't argue with appetite, man. I mean, I know it's the, like you say, it's the one for a lot of people where it is their um, best, you know, probably the best received debut. Um, mm. Sweet Child of Mine gets played everywhere and some people would argue that we've all heard far too many bad versions of it coming out of a pub somewhere on a Saturday night. Exactly. <laughs> equally, that does show the impact it's had. But if you even dig into like a little deeper on that album with tracks like My Michelle and Rocket Queen mm. and Anything Goes, um, Mr. Brownstone, stuff like that. The, yeah. Just can't, there's not a track. If you, um, It's not an album I listen to often, often too often too. Because mm. It's one of those albums, like you say, it's almost ingrained into your social conscious with everything that's around you. Yeah. And so it's not one I, but, every now, but then when I do put it on, there's always the songs that I forget about. Um, like You're Crazy and stuff like that. And it's, mm. it's, it's, you know, it's just a really good choice, man. Really. It's, yeah, it's, it, again, it's, for me, it's a, it's a record that has, it's just classics. Just, you know, you just go down that track list. It's just classics. And as you say, that it's so much so that some of them are a bit like you almost, you're kind of sick of it because you hear, yeah, all these other bands covering them. <laughs> um, and I think, if if you if you try and throw that to one side and just look at the quality of the the album, it's it's an outrageous album yes. that, that came along at the the perfect time. I mean, I felt if they were uh, a few years earlier, it would have perhaps been a bit more difficult for them to break out. But if they were a few years later, it would have probably been a bit difficult. Yeah. It's just perfect. Um, and yeah, that that album for me, it's it's the one obviously that they've never surpassed, and it'll probably follow them. <laughs> you look at you look at their set now since even since they reformed with, with Slash and Dove, you can argue that ninety percent of their set is still Appetite. Exactly. It's yeah. It's, it's the ones that people want to hear. Exactly. You know. Uh, top three. 
we're getting very serious very serious now mate um again an album that's came around this similar period of my life to the darkness um one that huge had a real big impact on me um and it's audio slaves debut album um produced uh of course by rick rubin uh rick rubin was wouldn't say he put them together but he certainly put them in contact because obviously audio slave forming from wayne sack de la roche left rage against the machine and initially they were looking for a new singer uh, they then decided you know brad and, and tim and, and tom decided they were going to just go for a new project uh they'd been in rehearsal rooms recording stuff uh with rick and him knowing that obviously chris cornell was just doing solo stuff at the time and wanting to be in a band said you know get together and like i mentioned earlier my dad was a big fan of rage against machine he was a big fan of uh the grunge thing as well so he was a massive fan of Soundgarden. And I remember both of us being like ridiculously excited that these sort of two worlds were going to collide. And um, and I remember Kerrang making a big thing about the fact that they had the debut for the video for Coach Cheese uh, coming on. They were like, obviously, this is before, you know, social media and, yeah. and YouTube and everything else kicking things off. So Kerrang had the big sort of showcase, if you like, of video for Coach Cheese. And just, it was something ridiculous. Like it was on at like 11 o'clock at night on a Wednesday or something ridiculous. It was like a midweek thing. And I, I've got school the next day and my dad's got work and both of us are like, can you just play this video, please? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and it came on and it, it just had such a big impact. I mean, like we said about Coaches being on there as well. But, you know, you got stuff like Show Me How to Live, like Stone, Gasoline, Exploder. It's just an absolute banger of an album. And for me, at the time it came out for me personally, I was just starting to play bass. I just started picking up bass. And for the bass lines on that, from Tim Comerford, I, I was always massively influenced by him and would sit there with obviously Rage Against Machine records and stuff. And then, then to have the same guy airing just as killer bass lines, as far as I'm concerned, um, and new stuff. And I, it, it, it was that thing where, like, when they were advertising it, um, you know, it was that thing of, oh, well, it's, you know, Rage Against the Machine and it's Soundgarden together, but Audio Slave were bigger than the sum of their parts, I think. Um, I know they were bigger than just two bands colliding, and I think that they could have been bigger than either band had they continued. Um, I've always argued the case that uh, when we spoke about them uh, with friends and stuff, that their last album that released, Revelations, is their best album, I think. Um, but unfortunately they released it and then six weeks later Chris Cornell decided he didn't want to be an audio slave anymore and uh, went off and did a solo thing for a little bit for performing Soundgarden and then obviously Rose Against Machine reformed they did do a couple of uh, live shows over in the States and then obviously sadly Chris Cornell passed away uh, but I did see in interviews beforehand that they were planning to do more shows and I was hoping for that to come to the UK because I sadly not get to see never got to see audio slave live mm. um but the impact on this album for everyone it was again it was something that was different you know the, the lot of the stuff that i was listening to at the time with the whole new metal thing was arguably influenced by rage against the machine yeah but when they came out with the audio slave record for me it was better than anything that was coming out at the time it came from a completely different place you didn't have and because you know obviously Zach de la Rocha was in front of it and it was a, an amalgamation of everyone to have chris cornell voice over like Tom Morello's guitar parts which for me just like bang just blew my mind completely and it seems to be one of those ones that when I talk to people who are in bands of sort of my age that 
you know, people in their sort of late twenties, early thirties seem to be the ones that people go back to. And like, well, I was chatting to the Howling Tides guys about stuff as well, and that was mm-hmm. one album we all sort of agreed on that. You know, this is a, a great guitar. It's a great guitar album. It's a fantastic guitar record, um, and it's absolutely slamming. All the songs. There's not a song you ever skip on it. Um, and you know, Tom Morello. And in fact, we were saying earlier about no one going after um, Dimebag Daryl. That's not true. I don't think. I think Tom Morello could go after. Dimebag in terms of influential guitarists. Yes, all. yeah, I would agree. He's, he's he was so different. He to, changed, you know, the people, yeah. people used effects after him and everything else. Mm. And, and if you've heard it, there was a I saw a, a review once, and they were trying to say I think it was around the time Audio Slave released Revelations actually, and they were trying to slam Tom Morello and basically say that he was nothing without his guitar effects. Basically, that he wasn't a great guitarist at all, and that it was all effects, which was absolutely rubbish. Um, and then, um, as most reviewers are. <laughs> <laughs> controversial <laughs> just uh, throwing that in there <laughs> you always going to get some I think there's like it was like when you know there was uh, go on the sidetrack you know there was that reviewer who just went and attacked David Coverdale when he did that purple album and, <laughs> yes that wasn't like a review of the album it was like a personal attack for no, oh, yeah. time, no reason and this felt like the same sort of thing you know it just felt like he decided he didn't like Tom uh, Morello for whatever reason and was going to go attack him but Tom Morello then went and released uh, an album called The Night Watchman which was a solo record that he did and it was mm. pure acoustic like nothing on it and it's incredible if you've never heard mm. it the album, it's an that's interesting um but yeah, going back to the Audio Slave record, I don't think there's, uh, you know, a finer team of musicians altogether. And I thought it was a shame that they never continued beyond the third album. I would have loved to have seen them continue with it. But, uh, but there we go. Yeah, that's my number three. Yes, uh, my number three. It's uh, It continues my trend of albums that have become so iconic and ingrained in culture that maybe you don't even want to go back and listen to it anymore because you hear it that often. Um, it's Leonard Skinner with a pronounced Leonard Skinner. Um, again, it's, you know, it's got Freebird on it. It's got, you know, all of these iconic songs, uh, you know, Tuesday's Gone. Um, and it, 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 it's so, it's such a big album that it's, Every time you mention the subgenre of Southern rock, this is the album that everybody instantly assumes, you know, this such and such a band will sound like if you say Southern rock. You know, you, every time uh, a Southern rock band releases a record, it's, well, what does it sound like this, essentially? Um, and it's, it, it's, it's an album that, that has always... You know, it's just ingrained, isn't it? And it's iconic. Um, it changes the the, the game, I think, um, particularly around that period of time, you know, 1973. Um, and it's, I, I believe that, you know, they, they were knocking about for a while before. So again, it goes back to this thing of it's essentially a best of. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think, um, I mean, they were, it was uh, they they were playing stuff like you know the Freebird was in things years later. I remember it being in uh, the Grand Theft Auto game as a big feature oh, in the game. Yeah, there was a big big thing in that game, and it, they were playing that song at that point. 
you know, a song from 1973. <laughs> 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 you know, it's just entrenched, isn't it? Um, yeah, it's it's iconic. What more can you say, isn't it? Yeah, I think you're right. It's one of those one of those albums that, like you say, is just etched on the DNA of everyone, really. And arguably, every Southern band since, or any band that's got a Southern tinge to them, like you say, yeah. the first, you know, first time I hear, you know, Blackberry Smoke or um, George Thunderbolts or whoever it might be, the first thing you get comparisons to in reviews when they're trying to describe the band is that it's good. It's almost mm. become an adjective in a yeah. background. You know, that's how sort of iconic it's become. Mm. And for me, like, I mean, I don't think that they ever remotely got close to uh, the, this, this debut. Um, I, I feel that this was undoubtedly their pinnacle. Mm. Um, you know, this, I mean, I, I think about it now, you know, simple man, you know, there's just so many that, the, I mean, how many times have these songs been covered? <laughs> you know they're everywhere aren't they throughout the decades oh god yeah man um, they all, they, people always come back to this one uh, in particular so that, that that's why it has to be in my top three <laughs> moving on to the uh, the top two we're very very tough now very I think tough. that I think any of these top four could be number one on another day in my opinion yeah um, definitely but uh, yes, what is your number three? Um, my number two goes back to... Oh, number two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can talk about Audio Slave again, if you like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I always get it wrong. <laughs> I was so close to the end. <laughs> so good, man. Um, you're obviously just trying to delay it. That's all. It's fine. <laughs> um, but um, my number two choice does have a uh, connection with my number three choice in the fact that it is again seeing band members of uh, previous outfits join forces mm. and came around roughly around the same time the sort of early 2000s it seemed to be a bit of a uh, birthing pool for super groups for one of a, a better term and my number two is Velva Revolver and Contraband Oh, yes. uh, this album was another album that had a, a completely massive impact on me um, so much so it's still an album I play regularly um, it's been like 18 years since it was it came out um, I think the reason it had such an impact on me is because it was obviously you know you had Slash and Duff and, and Matt Sorum from Guns N' Roses you had uh, Scott Wheeler and Stone Temple Pilots of course Mr Dave Kushner as well um, but because you had people from that sort of calibre of band you would almost forgive them if it came out with a bit of a relaxed album in a bit of yeah. a, we can put out, you know, we don't have to work on this too hard. We've already got an audience there, you know, all STP and, and Guns N' Roses fans are just are going to lap this up. Yeah. Um, but they didn't come out like that. They came out from the moment Sucker Drain Bloom kicks onto the album. It's, it's another band full of piss and vinegar and it was another new band and they were absolutely hungry as hell. And it had that real punk and roll attitude about it. And they were really, really hungry for it. And that came across, and I, I still think that comes across now. Um, for me personally, it's probably, it's definitely just my opinion. And it is definitely because of my, like the, the age I was when it came out, but it had more of an impact on me than Appetite did. Um, oh. for, for the pure reason of, I was around when it came out to make that impact. 
around in night you know i was born in 1987 so um i think the album came out about a month before i was born uh mm. so as much as my dad was probably playing it i probably didn't hear much too much in the womb um <laughs> and certainly not on a conscious level to uh, appreciate the impact it had culturally um but you know when when contraband came out i was 15 16 you know i'd have been 15 16 in 1987 it might be another story but for me that coming out the gates you know it was i loved stone temple pilots and i loved guns and roses from my dad playing them growing up this was something new this was something different mm. and again like audio slave I, I found it to be bigger than the sum of its parts um and i felt like they didn't come out to they didn't come out to phone it in. It came out with a real guttural punch. Obviously, you got tracks like Slither on it and Fall to Pieces, I still think, is one of the best songs ever written. Uh, you got uh, Sucker Train Blues and, you know, all the songs going all the way through the album. Everything that's on that record is fantastic. And I just feel that the writing on it was really top quality. To think that it was nearly written with Josh Todd of Buck Cherry singing was a bit weird. Wow. That's close. Uh, yeah. yeah. To the point where Keith uh, Nelson, formerly Buck Cherry, he's not in Buck Cherry anymore, actually gets a uh, writing credit on uh, Saving the Alien off the album. Mm. Um, because when they were forming it as such, it was, it was uh, Slash, Duff, Matt, and then Buck, Josh Todd and Keith Nelson, Buck Cherry. And at the point where they were writing songs together and everything. And then for whatever reason, it didn't work out and they went back and sort of reformed Buck Cherry with a new lineup, which is great because they came out with a 15 record, which I love. Um, and then they brought in at this point, you know, Dave Kushner and, and Scott Wheeland and seeing them on that tour, like so earlier mentioning Silvertide. Um, so I'm on that tour and that was the Brixton Academy in London and the power that they delivered those songs with. They made Brixton Academy feel like a sweaty punk club gig. I mean, there was literally like you were, you know, like we were really small in a gig and the energy is really great, but you come out in other people's sweat. And you go, yes. It was like that coming, walking out of Brixton. I've never experienced that <laughs> on like a quite, you know, it's not, you know, it's not Wembley, but you know, it's a pretty yeah, big yeah. Brixton Academy. Still, you know, it's still an academy size venue. And to come out of there when everyone's completely soaked in each other's sweat because it's just been that sort of energy throughout the whole night was was really mm. insane and yeah like i say for me it, it was a, a an influence on my bass playing it was an influence on the songs and stuff i started writing and arguably then fed into bands that i loved so like buck cherry and everything coming back through the ranks and uh it seems to be again another uh album that has influenced other bands that i like who are now coming through through the ranks i know me and arjun of gorilla right have spoke heavily about contraband and then of what an influence that is and what a great record it is so yeah that's got to be my number two Mm, that's a solid shout. Uh, my number two, I'm going in with a heavy hitter again. Uh, it's Black Sabbath with Black Sabbath, obviously. I'm with that, mate. <laughs> um, it's uh, what? What can you say about this record that people haven't said? You know, it's it's so iconic um, from the opening track obviously entitled black sabbath mm. um there's obviously there's these these great stories of uh, you know tony iomi saying about when they when they'd play these songs probably particularly that one um that it was so different that people were terrified by it they'd run out and scream <laughs> you know <laughs> like it was it, i think he summed it up perfectly where he said that 
you know, he was watching horror movies and he was like, well, why can't we do that for music? And it's like, it's almost like that. It's like, you know, they'd put horror and rock together and obviously by pure, uh, happy coincidence, Tony Iommi had to loosen the strings on his guitar, giving them, you know, a heavier sound. Um, almost creating what would become heavy metal overnight, really. Um, is, is Yeah, it's, it's so iconic. I mean, the, it, what, you know, the, there's there's everything there, isn't there? You know, you hear time and time again nowadays, there's so many bands that, that will cite this album as, you know, a moment where it's changed everything. Um yeah, I mean, Ozzy, it's so, I mean, have you heard, particularly around that time as well, I mean, this this early 1970, this came out, I mean, mm. was there a singer like Ozzy Osbourne? No, <laughs> not remotely. <laughs> Ozzy only got the job because he had a PA, I mean. I mean, he, he, he came, there's that amazing story where apparently he came to do the audition and he was walking down uh, the the stairs down to the place and he had a shoe that he was just holding like a some kind of pet <laughs> dragging this random shoe along and it's like any, anybody else would take one look at this guy and think he's a raving lunatic let's not go anywhere near this man <laughs> you know <laughs> but you know the i think that they 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 must have looked him and took a gamble there must have been something you know where they thought we're gonna give this guy a go and just you know let him do whatever he's gonna do because you know even today it's so different you know his, his vocal ability i mean i remember my dad saying that um when the when he first went to see them um you know he grew up with the robert plants mm. and the you know the ian gillens and uh, you know like these these powerful vocalists and he, he said that you know he couldn't get on with them at first because oh, wow. that different yeah he heard he heard uh ozzy sing and he was like i like the band but i don't like the singer and apparently there was loads of people that were saying this at the time they were like i'm not so sure about this singer because he was just that different i can understand that because like you say at the time you had you know gillen Plani, mm. all these sort of higher register powerhouses where i was yeah. singing he, he he did go sort of higher pitched in in his solo career but what people forget is in, in the sabbath and the early days he was much more in that lower register that almost droning is not the right term but it was you know it wasn't a, a powerful and and there's this thing where you know like particularly with like songs like iron man he <clears throat> sings along to the guitar you know it's at that point in time that's so unusual yeah. like you you wouldn't hear robert plant singing along to the guitar. <laughs> it wouldn't work no. you know um and i think that you know it's it's as I say, it's a, it's a complete game changer. You know, you had all of these bands post that album. Mm. You know, you, you can I can listen to bands today that will oh, have Sabbathy things in there. You know, yeah. um, particularly from that first record. Um, yeah, that a band that nearly was very nearly. Some will say completely responsible for metal. So, yeah, I mean, you say that. Especially on that first album, I mean, I mean, that came out, was it very early 1970, wasn't it? That yeah, apparently, if, uh, according to Wikipedia, uh, fif uh, February uh -huh. uh, 1970. 
So you've got an album that's 52 years old and yeah. arguably, like we were saying, um, on some other albums that have come into the list, I, I would argue you could put that on now and it would stand along with most metal bands these days. Yeah. You know, tracks like NIB, you know, previously to that, I mean, Geezerbuck has always been a huge influence on me. The bass player, yeah. um, his bass playing that he was doing in 1970. And yes, you have people like John Ompersall as well. He was also bringing it to the foreground. But no one was playing like Geezer. And I would argue, I would argue that no one has played like Geezer since. Mm. Not really. And same with Tony Iommi's playing. Um, obviously, some of that was due to the injury um, as well. But the, the amount of riffs that man has come up with over time yeah. is insane. Like we go about Ozzy's solo work there. And there was a, there's obviously a collaboration that between him and, and Tony Iommi on the new album, Patient Number no. 9. And um, Ozzy said, like, when he, Tony Iommi came back with a riff of him, he's like, why didn't you have that for 13? Like, that's... <laughs> <laughs> why didn't you have that for Last Sabbath album? And uh, same with Bill Ward, you know, he was essentially a heavy... You kind of basically had a heavy jazz drummer, a guitarist oh. who, like, mucked his fingers up in a, you know, in a horrific industrial accident. Um, On paper, it's a disaster. Yeah, Ozzy. <laughs> and Geezer, who really wanted to play lead guitar. Yeah. Um, you know, on paper, like you say, it should have lasted about a fortnight, but instead it lasted, you know, 50 years off and on, like as, as a live, yeah. nearly 50 years and still going strong. And arguably their influences has reached across the world and across all kinds of genres of music, particularly obviously in the formation of heavy metal and rock music. And, you know, it all started with this album where you've got the likes of NIB on it. You've obviously got Black Sabbath itself. Mm. It's, you know, the whole album's just absolutely storming from start to finish. It's, yeah. it's just one of those records, mate. So, um, it I, is. I it's... punched myself in the face for not picking it. <laughs> <laughs> it just, it felt like it's like, well, it has to be there yeah. for me. Um, I remember listening to this one as a teenager and I still thought I was like, this is so cool. Yeah. You know, and this is at a time where, you know, you've got bands that are, you know, doing way more heavier stuff at this point. Mm. You know, you, you had like Slipknot and really like very heavy stuff. Um, but the, you can see where the origin of that genre is with this album. Um, and a, yeah, such a benchmark moment. Even so, that they used it as the influence for thirteen, didn't they? I remember seeing an interview. Yeah, it feels they those two in particular. Uh, thirteen feels like like the brother of yeah of like this. Well, yeah, it's um, like there was um, uh, what is it called? Like Zeitgeist. Oh, Zeitgeist. Is, is yeah, is something like that. Um, that that is clearly like Planet Caravan. Yeah. You know, they, there's there's a clear thing there. Um, so it's, it, it even went on to essentially influence themselves <laughs> at the end of the career. <laughs> it's just crazy. <laughs> uh, but yes, we, the big moment, number one. Now, before we, we do this, I had a little prediction, didn't I? As, uh, we went into the, the videos. Um Lee, Lee was saying that this this one is your what your desert island disc. Yeah, I would describe this album as my desert island disc album. It's the the album I've always said if um, you know I was stranded on a desert island and I was only allowed to listen to one album for the rest of the time, it would be this. Mm. And at it, 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 first, I thought 
you know, because you, you were like, oh, it's a one and done album. Mm. You know, this person was not here anymore. At first I was like, it has to be. Surely, is it Jeff Buckley? Yeah, it is. I had a hunch. And uh, I mean, for me, it was like when you said that this guy did one album and that was it. And I thought, you know, you, you would have grown up in the 90s. Mm. You're a 90s kid. And it's like, this is the only guy I can think of, <laughs> you know. But honestly, last night, uh, I was like, if I, it has to, who else could this be? <laughs> um, I mean, I can't argue with it. Um, it's just like you say, we say earlier about it, you know, you had um, earlier in your choices. And for me, you know, I... <sighs> I grew up, you know, my dad was listening to music. Music was part of being part of my life for, for as long as I can remember. And in the midst of listening to bands like we were talking about earlier, like Rage Against the Machine and the whole Brittle thing with Wild Hearts and bands like Ugly Kid Joe as well and, and stuff like I was listening to off my own back, um, I remember hearing Mojo Pin was the first song I heard. Oh, yeah. And it was completely different. It was stripped right back, you know. It wasn't heavy on guitars. It was just Jeff Buckley and his Telecaster. And I was mm -hmm. like... Who is this man and what is his voice? You know, even as a, yeah. I mean, when it came out in 94, so what would have been like seven or eight years old? And I was just like, what's this? You know, what is mm. this? And um, I'm badgering my parents, you know, I, I need to hear more of this guy. And my parents always been, you know, my mum's like a completely different taste of music to my dad, but there was always music about the house. So, um, and it wasn't like I was trying to listen to anything too destructive at that point <laughs> in time. So, you know, they, they bought me um, the Grace album on cassette and I can't tell you how many times I listened to that. So much later, the fact that I wore out the cassette by the time I got a bit older and I went out and bought it on CD. And then as I mentioned earlier, um, when I got my vinyl um, starting, there was like a, because obviously, you know, vinyl can be quite expensive these days. So yeah. I, was, I had a, I would, I had a, I had a ruling with that vinyl collection. Me and Jay sort of made a pact ourselves that the albums we got on vinyl were the albums that were special to us. Yeah, um, and it wasn't, you know, you weren't just going to throw away um, money on a, on a on an album on a whim where you like two songs. It's got because especially with vinyl, where you all, you put on a vinyl, that's a commitment. You are, you know, sitting down and listening to that properly. Yeah. And I think that's sometimes the way you delve into things of an album as well, to sit down and give it that time. But, um, you know, this album was at the top of my list and I always loved it. And it was an album I went back to because, you know, you, you grow up and stuff. And I remember really having a huge impact when it came out on me as a kid and seeing them uh, headphones in and soaking up tracks like Goodbye, um, like Last Goodbye. And you mentioned earlier, like Lilac Wine and So Real, um, Grace itself, of course. And uh, without doubt, the most beautiful rendition you will ever hear of Hallelujah. Um, mm. And I, I, I'll, put, I'll put my last, you know, last two quid on that. You know, I think, you, you know, that's the best rendition of Hallelujah, hands down. And like we mentioned, you know, you know, Leonard Cohen even said himself that, you know, Jeff Buckley did the best version of it, <laughs> um, which, I, which I love. And, you know, fair play to Leonard Cohen for just going, you know what? Yeah. I, I prefer that. And, I, and that's great. I think there's a lot of songwriters out there um, there's sometimes, not often, but sometimes a cover is better than original. Not very often. It's very rare because obviously normally the person that writes the song will have the most emotional connection to it and that will get um, translated. But the, the sort of, one of Jeff Buckley's biggest assets, I think, was how emotional he was in his mm. tone and his delivery. Um, 
you know, all the way through that album. It's quite a dark record in its tone. It's not dark, obviously, in the sense of Sabbath or something like that, but in the <laughs> in the, no, tone, in the tone of the, of the lyrics and, and the quality of things. And I just think um, the fact that he never got, obviously, he was writing the second album when he passed away, but the fact he never got to follow up that album properly. Um, I know they did a posthumous release of the bits and pieces he recorded, which to me, don't ever do that. If it's yeah, not- it didn't. It didn't feel right. I listened to it. It was like sketches by something or other. My drunken heart or something like that. Yeah, I just feel that um, if if an artist has created a piece of work and they've completed it fully and it's mm. already in line, like when Chuck Berry died, he'd already written his latest album. He recorded it. It was all set to. It'd be mixed. He'd heard it. He'd okayed it. It was all yeah. set to be released, but he sadly passed away. And they mm. still released it. To me, that's okay because the artists signed off. They wanted that artwork to be represented. Um, but when you get the sort of, well, we've got four lyrics that he sang once and a take of a guitar part here and some drum bit, and we can fill in on this bit. It'll be fine. I just, it's never going to be what the artist wanted it to be. Um, so I think that was a, a, a bad move. But to be fair, most of the time, the, the only album everybody will ever talk about when they talk about Jeff Buckley is Grace. Yeah. And um, all the way through that record, it's just, it's a, what I would call a bottle of wine record. I want that on my vinyl player, bottle yeah. of wine, chill out, soak up. Um, and it doesn't matter how many times I listen to it, there's some albums that I have to walk away from from a little bit not in an horrible way just you know there's certain albums you listen to them and you go i've had enough of that for a bit put it on the shelf you know listen to some other stuff and you come back a couple months couple of weeks whatever it might be for Mm. me i don't think i'll ever get bored of listening to grace Mm. and the impact had culturally on it um it's funny we were doing this um i don't know we were talking about darkness earlier and i don't know if you watched justin borkins yeah he's literally just brought he just done one about yeah And he was talking about that on there. And I, it was literally just because I'll have it on while I'm doing stuff. And I had it on. And I was like, oh, okay, now I'm going to look like I'm ripping off Justin Hawkins talking. <laughs> when when that video came out, yeah. uh, I think it was like the other day or something, <laughs> it, it just reaffirmed. I was like, it's a sign. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he talked about on there that Radiohead were doing uh, an album. And I can't remember what song it was now, but basically... They yes. were struggling um, to do the vocal takes, or Tom York was struggling to do the vocal takes on one song. But for the life of me, I can't remember what, what the track was now. It was something like something trees. Yeah. Yeah. Um uh, tall trees or something. I'm not much of a radio head guy, yeah. but But you know, they went out, they decided, right, we're gonna take a break from the studio, mm. get away from this, go clear our heads or whatever, and went to the garage in London where Jeff Buckley was playing. And Tom York just heard him and then completely changed his whole approach to how he was going to do the song. He said it gave him the confidence to sing in that higher falsetto kind of register and they did it in three takes and then burst into tears, you know, and it just shows how emotive the music can be. And to have that kind of impact on a band like Radiohead, I mean, Radiohead in the 90s, Jesus, you know, they they were a real strong band, you know, they still, um, you know, and arguably in the 90s, they were definitely sort of at the sort of creative peak and the thing, so they had no reason to doubt who they were and what they were doing, mm. and changing their approach or whatever. But to go watch someone like that and go, no, you know what? I think that's what I need. And he had all these influences from artists who were already established and to artists that come through the ranks to 
18-year-old kids, like you were saying earlier in the vinyl store. Yeah. Today, literally a couple of months ago. So, yeah. Still, so, still like, well, I have to get that. Yeah. So you're talking like decades after he passed his way and he's still got that grab on people. Mm. That's got to be my number one. It's a fair shout. Uh, I feel that the closest thing that has come out post his passing that is kind of the spiritual successor um, is the, it's a a kind of compilation album, but it's it's just called You and I. Okay, yeah. Um, And I think it's the closest thing tonally that you can get to if Jeff Buckley was was to release another album, it feels like it's in this tone, and there's uh, it's it's material that he had recorded, um, along with possibly the most eeriest story that he ever tells about. It's the he, he's he's just talking, and it's he, he, while tinkering on a guitar about the, the a dream he had, which inspired him to write the song "You and I." Ah, okay. And it's it's eerie. Um, he talks about the this dream, and he's kind of telling this story, and it's unraveling the story as it goes along, and it's 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 beautiful. Um, but it, on there, he does a couple of covers, very much like he did on Grace. Yeah. Um, he he does a couple of Smith songs, um, which really work. Um, and it's. It feels the closest thing. So if, if anybody listens to Grace and thinks, well, I need something else that's Jeff Buckley, I would say go to that one, not anything else. There have been the rest of these compilations, but I think this one is the one that's the most respectful. Um, I don't know whether they'd just found unreleased material. Right. Um like a more recent discovery, but um, there's no uh, stuff where other people have filled in for him. That's good. It's it's material that he has done. Um, so yeah, that's just a a bit of a side note. Oh, check that out. Yeah, it's it's worth a listen if you if you listen to Grace and you want a bit more. I'd I'd go for that one. Uh, my number one. Um, there's there's one person left who in my book has completely changed everything uh, forever uh it's Jimi hendrix with are you experienced um again it's littered with classics that you will no doubt hear far worse versions in pubs (laughs) 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 you know um for me it's outrageous that uh, he would come out with a debut album that would have Hey Joe, Purple Haze, <laughs> you know, Foxy like Lady, these Red House, pardon, Foxy Ladies on, uh, yeah, Foxy Lady. Um, you know, it's the, the again, it's you, you look at this record and the opening six or seven tracks, um, are outrageous, you know, they're, they're all classics, um. So much so that if you have a cover band uh, play any event, uh, the, the, you know, or a guitar-based cover band, people will request these songs to be played today. <laughs> um, 
And, uh, you know, when did this come out? It came out in 1967. Uh, ironically, the same year that The Doors released their record as well. So um, it was obviously at a time where things were, you know, changing. Yeah. And there's this crazy story about Hendrix where, you know, he wasn't getting enough out of the, the amps and things. So he was essentially like to get that fuzzy sound that you'd have. Cause you know, you, there wasn't pedals and things for that. He was just cranking them up to the point where he was distorting these amps and breaking them <laughs> um, to get the sound he wanted. He was just literally just cranking it. Um, and so uh, during these gigs that he would play, his amp was quite literally disintegrating as it was <laughs> going on. Like it would have just absolutely vibrated it to death. Um, so Lord knows how many he got through. Um, but yeah, it changed everything, didn't it? Oh, good. It's, you know, it's the, as you mentioned back when I talked about Van Halen, it's, you know, he was the guy before. Yeah. You know, um, and uh, yeah, he's, he's another one where, you know, he had the unfortunate uh, premature passing. Yeah. Um, of course, he went on to do a few more records after, but, um, you know, he, he was another guy that I think would have gone on to have done other things. I mean, there was a rumor, apparently, uh, it was in some documentary, apparently he wanted to go off and um, start an experiment with different genres. Yeah, I saw something about it. Still, there was talks of a jazz project. And, uh, yeah. And, you know, may maybe he would have gone on to do kind of the David Bowie thing where every so often he changes the genre or something, perhaps. Um, I mean, it's, it's hypothetical at this point, but, I mean, it, it makes you wonder because it's like if he changed rock to what it is kind of today, then what would he have done for for other things? Yeah. Would it have been successful? Would it have not? Who knows? But I think that, um, you know, all, every record that he released was pretty iconic. Oh, good. You know, I but mean, um, I, I think this is the one, again, even though it's the, the debut, it's the one people look to, isn't it, when you say Jimi Hendrix? It's like you say, it's almost like a, a, a greatest hits without being the greatest hits. Yeah. And we've got yeah. anything else on. I mean, I remember going to see uh, Blackstone Cherry at Wembley and mm. halfway through they did a cover of Purple Haze and like like a little section of Purple Haze in the middle of a thing they yeah. jammed it out and went into Purple Haze and then came back to whatever they were playing before I can't remember if it was Rain, Rain Wizard or, or whatever um, but they sort of jammed it out and went into Purple Haze and arguably the biggest audio callback if you like was the excuse me well I kiss the sky lyric when they mm -hmm. um you know, Chris Robson fed it to the crowd, but it was like the whole Wembley just taking over that, excuse me, while I could sky there. And, mm. and this stuff, when you see like that, all the way through to, like you say, any pub on a Friday and a Saturday night, any open night, anything where anyone's got a chance to play, um, you know, like going back to what we talked about, my mate Max, who was doing this sort of eruption thing. I remember one of the first first he showed me uh, that he was like that he got down was um, was Purple Haze and it was just like well wow you, you know someone who knows this and if he, it, I think inevitably it's still a sign of cool it's still a really cool you see someone walking through town with a Hendrix t-shirt on and you go oh he knows yeah. Yeah. I don't, you know what I mean it's that thing and it's still a, it's still a talking point like 
Uh, I, I've walked through town with Hendrix t-shirts and gone and robbed pubs and just got chat with people. And I think it's it's still that thing. It's still a talking point because he, like you say, sadly passed away and sadly passed the the 27 club like Jim Morrison. Yeah. Uh, is is that thing where people are going to wonder what they were going to do because they had such an influence, mm. such a short period of time. Um, and this coming from, you know, uh, an American former paratrooper who was left-handed and got told he shouldn't be playing guitar. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know. it's, again, is I think that the interesting thing with a lot of these iconic musicians um on paper should it have worked probably no you know um and it was you know he he was as i say he was distorting his amplifiers he was breaking things um you know he was setting fire to his guitars (laughs) you know (laughs) smashing them doing doing things that people would consider just to be completely insane back in back in that era um you know, whereas if you if you have any guitarist now that sets fire to their guitar, people will go, well, Jimi Hendrix did that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, so what? Um, you know, it's uh, just, yeah, everything. I mean, he's, he's an icon, just his image yeah. alone is um, just kind of in pop culture now, you know, timeless. I mean, how many people do you walk? You're at a festival somewhere. How many t- tattoos of Hendrix do you see when you walk about? Yeah, exactly. It's you know, all done by a guy that uh, did it all before 27, which is uh, madness to think about, really, isn't it? I mean, I'm 28, so I'm I'm already a, a year over, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I haven't achieved that yet. So. <laughs> Don't worry, mate. I'm 34 and I've not achieved it. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, uh, that was our uh, top ten debut albums. Um, I'm interested to know. I'm sure. I'm sure you are as well, Lee. Uh, what is your top ten? Uh, comment below because clearly, I mean, we have very different uh, top tens. Clearly, um, and uh, I'm sure there's some that we've both missed. Um, <laughs> yeah, th- there's going to be one. I think that I'll go. Oh, I wish I'd have included that. But the the big thing I was looking at through this, I was looking at kind of iconic bands, as you could probably tell, but Mm. there were so many where you would assume that they would have a game-changing debut album, and it wasn't. Like, I would say ACDC. Like, for me, it wasn't the game-changer that came later. I'd say the same about Aerosmith. Exactly. Like, so I'd be interested to hear... Uh, the audience choices. So comment below and uh, let us know. Thank you very much.